Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. Today we're going to discuss sections 4.13, 4.14, and 4.15. These cover using the method fetch to assert the presence of hash keys, using fetch to set defaults, and documenting assumptions with assertions. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. So what did you make of the reading this week, Saron? This was dense. For me, it was dense. And it was so funny because we were talking before we started recording about my reading experience for these sections versus your reading experience. And I did something very different, which I think affected my experience reading, which is that I actually printed out these sections and did it very old school, had my pink highlighter and my green pen and went through and highlighted and wrote stuff. And so it ended up feeling like a lot more work, but I also think I got a lot more out of it. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I'm always reading it on the Kindle on my computer. um, And I found it these chapters relatively easy to get through. Um, There was a lot there and it was all interesting stuff. And I've got some stuff to comment on later on. But yeah, that's interesting taking a step back from the computer and just good old paper. It's good old fashioned paper. Yeah, killing trees, you know. (laughs) <laughs> no, I do. Um, but as far as the the content itself, I thought it was great. You know, the fetch thing, which we'll get into, is something that I've heard of. It was familiar, unlike some of the other sections in the book, which for me, I was really learning it for the first time. This was a little bit more comfortable. It felt, you know, it felt like something I'd heard of before. Maybe just hadn't taken the time to really think through. So it was nice to to get something that was a little bit more familiar to me. Awesome. So shall we dig into the first chapter? Yeah, let's do it. So it starts by telling us about a method that takes in a hash of values as a parameter, which is pretty common, right? A lot of times Mm -hmm. we'll take in, um, you know, args and args will have a bunch of different stuff in it. And in this problem, uh, the issue is basically, you know, what happens when you have something that's required, but it's set to nil or it's set to false, in which case some things might go wrong in our code. So how do we avoid that and how do we solve for that? And the solution is to use fetch. So you want to walk us through the first kind of code sample that we're talking about to set the stage? Sure. So in this example, Avdi looks at a method called add user and he's inspired by the user add method that you get on Linux systems. And in this method, It takes an argument called attributes, which is a hash, and it starts by assigning something called login, uh, which looks for the login parameter in the attributes hash, and it does it with the square bracket method. And if it says unless login raise argument error, login must be supplied. And then it accesses the password attribute in the attributes hash, And again, we have unless password raise argument error. And then it looks to see whether there's a home attribute set. If so, it adds it to this command variable and the same with a shell attribute and adds it to this command variable. And then there's other code that we we know we're not not privy to uh, before (laughs) it finishes by checking that if password is equals equals false, then add disabled login to this command variable. Otherwise, 
add the password flag and the password that was set. And there are a few other bits of configuration, but essentially the gist is working your way through this attributes hash and configuring your command as per the options. And then Avdi says, um, you know, here are some points of interest in this method. So the first thing he says is let's look at this password attribute because there's two things that happen. First of all, if the password attribute is not supplied, then we're gonna get an argument error. Second, if the caller passes false for the password attribute, then the method sets up an account with a disabled login. But there's a problem. Do you want to talk us through the problem? Sure. So the problem is because we're doing this check for that attribute and whether or not it exists and whether or not it's true or false, false for that attribute is actually a valid argument. It's a valid value. Sometimes the password is actually false, but because it says unless password raise an argument, that automatically uh, gives us an argument error that says password or false must be supplied. So there's this issue with the way that we're doing it because that conditional means that we can't really accept false as a quote unquote true value in this method. So what do we do when we have a legitimate value that is actually false and we need to be able to handle that? We'll discuss the solution to that in a second because there's also another problem that Avdi raises with this code, which is the verbose input checking. So as you might have heard from when I was running through the code, there was a lot of, if this attribute is set, then do this. If this attribute is set, then do that. And at the beginning, we have these two unless preconditions for the password and the login um, where we have to raise an argument error if these two things aren't set. And Avdi says that, you know, they make for a big tangent at the beginning of the method and we don't get to the meat of the method until line 11. So we've got two problems. This idea that the password flag, if it's set as false, it won't behave in the way you want it to because the method's just going to blow up because of the precondition. And the second problem is all of this input checking. So this is where we get to the solution. And I really like this example because it brings back something that we learned um, a little while ago, right, about the preconditions and how preconditions are an important tool that we can use to make sure that we have exactly what we need. And if we don't have it, that we know that we don't have it as soon as possible. So it allows us to be a lot more strict with our inputs. But in this situation, uh, it's an example where maybe a precondition, the way that it's designed, isn't quite the best way to do it. And maybe there's a different solution, which which is just kind of a good lesson, right? In general, a lot of these tools that we have work really well in some situations, but in others, they might lead to other problems. Yeah, that's a really good summary of the situation. And so the first thing that Avdi does here is that he introduces the hash fetch method. And he replaces the way that we access the login and password attributes so before we access them with the square bracket method, and now we say login equals attributes.fetch login and password equals attributes.fetch password. And now the difference is if you have set password as false, we don't have a precondition that blows up. It just gets that false value. And so we get the result that we expect, which is that the disabled login flag is passed to the command. 
Yeah, it eliminates up front that initial check-in. So in the beginning, instead of saying, unless password do this, it just says password.attributes.fetch password. And this is the point where we get to better understand why it's better to use the .fetch instead of just using the, what is that operator called when it's just the, the square brackets? I'm not sure. I just call it square brackets. Okay, square brackets is fine. <laughs> <laughs> But it talks about what it does, which I thought was really interesting. So he walks through an example, or a couple examples actually, where he walks through different values and calls different things. And you get to really see explicitly the difference between just using the square brackets and using the dot fetch. And so in this example, there's a hash and the hash has keys for the letter A, the letter B, the letter C. Letter A returns one, two, three. Letter B returns false and letter C returns nil. And using the square brackets, if we ask the hash to give us back the value for A, we get 1, 2, 3. If we ask the hash to give us the value for B, we get false. If we ask the hash to give us the value for C, we get nil. And if we ask the hash to give us a value for X, which is not in the hash at all, we also get nil. Right. And so what he does is he compares that to what happens if instead we use dot fetch. So for dot fetch, if we ask for the value of A, we get one, two, three, which is expected. If we ask for B, we get false, which is also expected. If we ask for C, we get nil, which is expected. But the difference is what happens when we ask for a key that doesn't exist in the hash at all. So if we ask for the value of X, we get back a key error, which is a lot more useful than just getting back nil. Because that way we can tell, oh, it's not that the value of it is actually nil. It's that this never really existed in our hash to begin with. Exactly. And so this is why back in the other code for the add user, we can now get rid of that precondition because fetch handles that for us. So we can differentiate between a value that's supplied but set to something like false and something that is missing entirely. And so in that add user method, now we raise an exception only when the password key is missing. And so we can safely set it as false. And then the bit of the code which disables the login will now run and it will work as intended. Right, exactly. So we don't have to do that unless password check that we were initially doing. And so this is an example where we talk about the value of being precise. And throughout this whole book, to me, the most interesting thing has been figuring out when to be precise, when to be forgiving, when to be more open, when to be very, very strict. And this is an example where we want to be a little bit more precise. And so using the fetch method instead of this, the, the straight um, the straight brackets allows us to be precise and really handle things a lot better. Well, it's interesting because we are precise in one way, but as Avdi then goes on to say, we've lost a little bit of clarity because mm. before in the first code snippet Avdi gave us, when he raised those argument errors, he had a little message with it. So it would say login not supplied or password must be supplied but now with fetch we just get the key error but we don't understand what then to do so any client programmers or other people working on the code may see it blow up but not understand why and so this is where Avdi says that fetch can also take a block and in this block you can customize the fallback action which is essentially what fetch does um, when a key is missing 
Yes, and I like this so much because that was one of the things that did stand out to me about the argument error we had in the initial example uh, because it was very explicit. It told us exactly what was going on. And again, it emphasizes the importance of the code not only working and doing what it's supposed to do, but the importance of making sure that what we're doing and what our intentions are is clear for other people coming onto the project. Yeah. And so he goes back to that add user method and he looks at the line where he fetches the password and he says password equals attributes.fetchPassword do, and so that's, this is the beginning of the block, raise key error and then the message password or false must be supplied, end. And so that's that block. So if indeed password wasn't set, then that block would be executed and we'd get the more helpful error message. And then he also goes on to say that fetch is great for hash, but it also exists for other things and it exists for an array and it exists on the singleton env object. So lots of different places that we can use it. And then he refers to this thing called the Manita library, which I hadn't heard of before, had you? Me too. Mm -mm. No. And so I did a little bit of research. Yes. Of course. <laughs> um, and this is interesting. So it's a library that provides a standard interface for working with different kinds of key value stores. Um, and there's no point going into too much detail now, but I recommend you check it out and just have a look at their readme because it's rather exemplary in some ways. Um, it's got... It, it lists out the goals of the projects, which are getting people started quickly with key value stores, being able to benchmark um, around different types of key value stores. But it's also got things of like code examples, the backends it supports, other alternatives that you may be comparing with Minita um, and how you should contribute. So I think it's just interesting readme reading for, you know, mm -hmm. how you might want to think about doing readme for your project. Mm-hmm. So that wraps up 4.13. It's funny, now that I've already read it and I'm reading it back to you, it seems so straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite a nice little chapter. Um, nice and self-contained. Yes. So on to 4.14. So 4.14, so we're continuing the conversation on fetch. But this time, we're focusing in on the idea of defaults. And so when we're dealing with hash keys, and some of them are actually optional, what should the fallback be? What are the default values? And how do we handle that? And so we want to be able to provide default values for optional hash keys. And we can use that using the hash fetch. Right. And so Avdi sets up an example here where there's a method, but it takes a long time to perform. But it's totally worth it because it's called emergency <laughs> kittens. Exactly. <laughs> and so, but you want to know that when you're trying to download your emergency kittens, they are actually being downloaded and, you know, it's not just failed silently. And so Avdi sets up this emergency kittens method and it has, it can take a logger. It can be configured with a logger so that as it's doing its job of downloading you random pictures of kittens from the web, you can know that that is definitely happening in the background. And so the method's called emergency kittens. It takes an options hash, which defaults to an empty hash. And the first line of this method sets a logger to whatever set to um, the logger key in the options hash, or it will uh, default to something called a default logger. 
And then it does all this other stuff, which is randomly search for images with kitten tags and it'll log things like finding cuteness. And when it's found an image, it'll say downloading cuteness. And, and I mean, the details of the method are detailed. Are details. <laughs> and there's a lot here. We don't need to focus in on it right now. But the key thing is that you get this logging um, and... Avdi is saying, Avdi says that sometimes though, because it's quite a detailed log, you may want to not have all of the logging. You may want to have a quiet mm-hmm. version. Um, and so you want to have want to be able to, to pass some kind of null logger. Um, and so we want our emergency kittens method to accept a false value for the logger, such that when logger options logger is set to false, there's no output. But unfortunately, this doesn't work. So in this example, we are still not using dot fetch. We're using the same original straight brackets that we were before. And so we have that same problem where we have an or operator. And when we have that and we're saying options logger, even though the value of false is a valid value for us, it, of course, returns as falsy. And as a result, it just skips straight and goes over to our logger.new instead. And so this is a very, very similar setup as the one before where we want to use dot fetch so that we can actually take in that false value that is a valid value and use it in the way that we want. Exactly. So we don't want to be to default to our standard logger if indeed the false option is set. We only want to default to the default logger if we haven't set logger at all so therefore if we use hash fetch in this case we can again use that block to conditionally set the default logger in cases where a key error will otherwise be raised and so avdi edits that first bit of code to say logger equals option stop fetch logger and then there's the curly brackets um and inside those curly brackets it says logger.new with the standard output passed um as the sync And so therefore, this time, if you set logger as normal, then that will be used. If you set logger as false, that will also be used. And when we get to the line that says, if logger equals equals false, logger equals logger.new with dev null as as the sync, which means it will just disappear. Uh, we, We get to that bit of code this time around. However, if logger is not set, then that block will execute and we're going to get the default logger. And so again, using FET enables us to use false as a legitimate value to customize the logger in the way that we expect it to. Yes, and I actually didn't know that fetch took a block. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. And it's interesting because in this, later on, Avdi makes quite a strong argument for fetch blocks, which I have some comments about because I've used Ooh. fetch, but I've only ever used it with the two argument method, which he mm-hmm. says is not worth doing. Um, <laughs> so it'd be interesting when we get there to, 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 to look at that argument a bit more. And so with that block, you might find that you use that block over and over again, in which case you might want to just save it as a default proc so you can have it in exactly one place and reference it a bunch of times. And this is, I believe, the point where he brings up the two argument. And it's funny because I did know about the two argument. And when I initially saw the block, my first reaction was, wasn't there a way to, to set a default by having a second argument? Yeah, that was kind of my initial reaction. Um, so I'm glad that he addressed that. And in that two argument fetch section, he says that uh, 
he understands that developers might want to use it because using a block feels like a little bit more work and it feels like there's overhead in doing that. But what he says, which I think is really interesting, is he says that when you're using a block, that block doesn't run unless it has to, right? Unless you are using the default. But when you have the two arguments, both arguments need to be evaluated whether or not you actually need the default. And right. so this may not matter very much if the default is a string or, you know, a number 42 or something very simple like that. But if that default involved modifying something in your database or doing something computationally challenging or anything else, it can cause these little performance hits that you may not know of. And I think that's really the big thing is, right? It's unintended side effects. So when you think you're just having a nice old default your code might be working a lot harder than you intended it to without ever needing to use that default value and he does say that it is a premature optimization and but but given that it's almost minor in the face of save time in the future it's interesting though because so theo and i use fetch all the time and we've I'm pretty sure we've only ever used the two argument way. So reading this, I was like, oh no, Avdi disagrees. But- <laughs> Avdi does not approve. <laughs> but it's interesting because if I think about when we've used the fetch, we often have very, it's often in a case where we don't want the code to blow up and we just, we have an idea of what a sensible default is. And if I think about the types of times we're using it it's often a particular number or something like that and we haven't necessarily extracted them out into default methods perhaps because we felt that it's only being used in this one particular place and we we know that it's not going to be used elsewhere or it's an internal api um that sort of thing and the nature of them is such that they just won't have any computation and you know we just need that sensible default so I probably will stick to using the two arguments for the first time where like there's no computation needed, mm-hmm. but, but probably think, you know, whether it's, it's time to change it to a block if I'm extracting it into a method because it's being used elsewhere. And so then potential, um, cases become a bit more costly, but I guess something to think about or something I should think about and everyone should think about if they're, if they're using the two argument, um, approach and then having to switch to a block um, because there's that potential, you know, there's more computation there, then that's quite that's quite a decent, a big change, right? If you're going from something where it's just a little default value to having to compute or there might be database yeah. side effects. And so maybe it's also just good to think about, wait, the way I'm using this fetch or the way I'm accessing it, is that still appropriate for whatever this is? Because I've actually had quite a big change. Um, and so maybe that fetch might not be the best solution for whatever, whatever you're doing. And I don't have a specific example right now, but it's it's probably just useful to think about why you suddenly need to make that change and and whether you need to change how you're accessing certain certain things in your code. And I think that's the big point that Avdi hits on at the very end because he says, I'd rather not think about it. And I feel like that's a lot of my attitude when I'm going to is, you know, I'll, I'll kind of pick, I remember, I think, I think Avdi may have written this article too, but there was a blog post I remember reading maybe a year or two ago about single, uh, single quotes versus double quotes mm-hmm. and how the person who wrote the article 
said, I just use double quotes all the time because I don't ever want to have to think about it, you know? And I said, I like that. I like that strategy. So, you know, I, I think that you're totally right. It definitely helps to think about one way or the other and there's use cases for both. And it sounds like if you're just doing, you know, strings and numbers and very simple things, sure, why not do the double, do the two argument form? But in his case, he would just rather not even spend the seconds making that decision. So not saying that, you know, one way is better than the other, just that he doesn't want to think about it. <laughs> Each to their own. Mm -hmm. But no, if anyone has any interesting points on this, um, if anyone is from the two argument side, then uh, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear mm -hmm. from you. Awesome. So shall we move on to 4.15? Let's do it. So for 4.15, we are talking about document assumptions with assertions. And so this situation was very interesting. It talks about having to use an external system, so something that we didn't write. Uh, and in this example, we're talking about a feed of banking transactions. And it talks about a situation where you're using this other system, this other API, and you're getting back information that is not documented very well and is potentially volatile. What did you think about that description of something being potentially volatile? When I read that, I thought, wait, how can how can code be volatile? Like it, it seems like it seemed like a very strong words to describe poorly documented results. I don't know if you had any kind of reaction to that word. No, I didn't, because I was just thinking Avdi's setting the scene for the thing he needs to explain, and so it needs to be dangerous. You were, like, in the moment. But yeah. remember the, the example that one of the chapters opened with about the spaceship blowing up? Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's so... True. It you could know, literally if, be volatile. Exactly. If code is not done correctly, it could cause real damage. And, of mm -hmm. course, in this one, we're talking banking transactions, so... That's true. Unit errors or anything could cause a lot of money to disappear. That is a very valid point. So with this example, with the bank transactions, we are dealing with an external system that is giving us stuff that we're taking in as input. And the biggest goal is because of the poor documentation, because it's inconsistent and it's volatile, we're trying to figure out what exactly we're getting and how we can use it. And the interesting thing to me was the use of assertions. And so I'm not sure how you use that word assertions. But when I think of assertions, I'm usually thinking of tests and I'm thinking of like setting expectations and making assertions. So it was it was new to me. It was interesting to see that application just in your actual code as well. Yeah, and also it's stuff as we as we go as we'll go on to see, it's all sort of things we're used to, but when you read through it, you can see why they're asserting you know, I need something to be this way, otherwise do this, and how that is implicit, which is also very interesting. Yes, definitely. And so in this case, we want to be able to read all of the transactions from a particular account number. And the first problem is we don't know what the read transactions method returns. We don't know what type it is. Which is kind of scary. Yeah, how is that? That seems like a very fundamental method. Um, and yet we don't know. And so Avdi says, well, let's just assume, seems like array is a sensible format. And so let's just assume that 
we are going to expect a raise. And so then he says, so let's write an assertion in our code. And that takes the form of, so transactions equals bank.readtransactions, taking the account number as an argument. And then the next line says transactions dot is a array or raise type error, which says transactions is not an array. And so there is, is the um, documentation of our assumption through the assertion. So there were two things that stood out to me. One, it it felt very uncomfortable to do a type check, right? To do just explicitly is a array. And we talk, we're going to talk a little bit about that feeling. But the other thing that was very interesting to me was using errors as documentation in the context of figuring out how something should work, which I never really thought of using error messages as that, right? It's it's like saying we okay, we figured out this part. Let's put a marker here of what we figured out. And if anything changes, we'll know right away, right? Using it as a system as a as a way to check in and make sure that we're still good. That to me was very interesting. Yeah. And I think Avdi goes on to say this a bit later, which is how I read it, which is this idea of saying, Oh, things have changed. Abort, abort. Yeah, Go back, yes. turn around, that sort of thing. It's not safe here. Exactly. Yeah. It's similar to how we normally use errors. It's more like, whoa, unfamiliar territory. You're going to need to have a look at this again. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was, it's almost like the panic button. And he actually calls it the canary in a coal mine. Yes. And then with regards to the type checking, he says, yeah, normally this sort of thing would be a code smell, but we're just in such a world of uncertainty right now. And we're working with code that we don't control. And so we need to be able to, you know, characterize what we're getting back and add, add some structure around it and so these assertions are just a way of giving us structure so if it was all internal stuff we wouldn't do this but we're just in such a world of uncertainty that we need to just start asking some questions to to reduce that surface area of uncertainty yes and he specifically uses the word border and he says that right now we're at the border of our code and if we almost pay the pay the tax, pay the price for doing the type checking and figuring things out up front, then later on as we move into our code and as we go closer to I guess the downtown area. I'm kind of curious as to what this land looks like in Avdi's head. Um, but as we get to the, really the meat of it and we get to the real parts of the code, we no longer have to worry about it. So it almost sounds like there is a a place, like a physical, a figurative place in our code where this type of check is a little bit more acceptable than other places. Yeah. And it's this idea of what's your domain, what's your neighborhood, and what's external, what's like beyond, I don't know, the trees or something, something you can't quite see. It's like the dangerous place. Don't go there. Or maybe yeah. you can't go there. So yes, we're going to shout exactly. out, hey, who's there? And see what answers we get back. Oh, I like that. Oh, I really like that visual. Okay, that's what I'm doing. I'm just doing a little shout out. I'm just saying, hey, what's up? What's your name? Array. <laughs> yeah. It really means a lot to me that you played along. I yeah, appreciate that. I'm all about that. <laughs> okay, and so then the next bit of the story, because this is a lovely story, is that, you know, now we want to find out more about this transaction and one of our teammates our fictional teammates who's had some experience with this api says mm, i think that the transactions are hashes and they've got string keys and so in our code we try using initially square brackets with the string key amount and see what we get 
And then we remember the lessons from the previous chapter and we say, <laughs> well, if we access the amount this way, then if there's no amount key set, we're just going to get nil and that's dangerous. We need to blow up if we don't get anything. So therefore, what do we do? We use dot fetch. Woo! Exactly. So we say transaction.fetch amount. And so now we know if there's no amount, we're going to blow up with a key error. So the next thing that we're going to try and do is actually use that amount information. So in the next code sample, and I'm actually just noticing that if you're looking at this on the PDF, it doesn't use dot fetch. And I'm assuming that's a typo because we just talked about how using dot fetch to get amount is the the better way of doing it instead of just using the regular square brackets. So assuming that's a typo, we're going to move on. Uh, and so here we're able to get back our amount value. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that the amount is what we think it is, which is that it's an integer. And so here we're going to ask, hey, are you an integer? And if you're not, we're going to raise type error amount, not an integer. And if we put the code through its paces, and we hit an, an error, and it says type error amount not integer. So at this point, we're still kind of exploring and figuring out, okay, so it's not integer, what could it possibly be? And so at this point, we use a debugger. Yes, and I just want to stop here and say that I'm really enjoying the story that Avdi's telling as we work through this code example, um, because what's cool about it is we're learning about how to interact with these APIs, but we're also learning about, hey, here's how you're going to approach working with this code. So first of all, you know, you might have your own hunches. Um, then you might ask people around you. So we go and ask this other colleague, hey, you've worked with this thing. What do you remember about it? Uh, we go off our own experience. So at one point he says, we know that many financial systems store dollar amounts as an integer. And then when it blows up, it's like, okay, then we go into the debugger. And actually for people um, who are not sure how to root around this stuff. This is a great little story around when you're building up something new, here's are the different resources that you can lean on to help you get to where you need to get to. So this is the part that surprised me a bit because the first thing that I would do if I were using an external system or an outside API is I would do a debugger right from the beginning. Mm. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't kind of bother with assuming it's an array and then hoping it's an array and then assuming the next thing is an integer and then I would just immediately look at the result and just take a look at it and use that. So I'm curious, is that your process too or are you more comfortable using it kind of this way where you guess and track and guess and track? This, you're right, this is exactly what I do. I I use, I do the debugger thing first or I, yeah. IRB. And so as part of a spike, so if I'm building up a new feature, um and there's uncertainty, we'll get ILB open and just start saying, okay, you know, what's this, what's that? And spike up little bits of code and see what we get back. And then we go and start writing out. Then we delete all that stuff, whatever we've written. And then we go back uh, and write the tests again. So you're you're completely yes. right, actually. I didn't think about that when reading it, but when, <laughs> but when I just put myself <laughs> in character, you know, yeah. I was the person in the book. But when yeah. I think about it, you're right. And this, you see, this is actually the power of story. I didn't think, wait a minute, I didn't do that. <laughs> this, the debuggers come in too late. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because some there are times when I'm writing tests with Theo and I'm st I, I'm debugging, I'm still in ILB and Theo will say, well, well, let's just run the test because the test will tell you. And I'm like, oh yeah, 
So sometimes I think I mm-hmm. do too much on the debugger <laughs> trying to get all the answers when I have a mm. test suite there to help me. But yeah. but still, yeah, you're completely right. I would have played around in advance and said, oh, it gives me an array and it gives me this. However, that still doesn't preclude having in the assertions that will blow up in case API changes. Yes. Like those are still going to be useful regardless. Yeah, I completely agree. I remember recently we were using the Meetup API for the CodeNewbie site and there was, yeah, there was a return value where the hash kind of changed because there was a there was a return value where there were no events. We're trying to get all the Meetup events for a specific Meetup group. And when there were no events, the format was just very different. And the array that we were counting on wasn't there anymore. I think it was just a string that said, there are no events instead <laughs> of, you know, and I was like, oh, darn. And, and we, we didn't know that until actually running through it. So either way, I think it's definitely helpful when working with an API that just might do things differently in different situations to be very explicit in making these assertions. Yeah. Okay. And so then... Um, the reason why we got the error is because amounts are actually stored as strings. Yay. Mm-hmm. That's exactly mm-hmm. what How we How convenient. Want. <laughs> <laughs> and so what Avdi then talks through is this idea about how can we get these strings into useful formats? And we go back to our favorite things, conversion functions, and we wrap the amounts inside the float conversion function multiply it by 100 so that we get cents because it was actually given in, in dollars and cents. And then we store that transaction. Yes, and it talks about how we use 2F and the problem with 2F is it can be really, really forgiving. And I love that that's a problem because that's one of the things that we've been talking about, right? When do we want to be forgiving? When do we want to be precise? And in this situation, we don't want to be quite that forgiving. Yes, we we need these things to be precise, and so we use the conversion function. Yes, and so an example of it being forgiving, because it's, it's funny, forgiving sounds like such a nice, awesome thing to be. Uh, but in this example, it says, you know, what if we have a negative number, right? What if our string is negative $3? Do we want that to still equate $3? Probably not. That would that'd be an issue for bank transaction amount data. So also, if we get a string, randomly in the amount thing then to f won't fail it will just turn that into zero and that's that's also no we want to be seeing if we're getting strings like a hegelian (laughs) as (laughs) per avdi's example in the amount key yes exactly right so negative numbers strings and words other symbols it's so nice that it just makes everything zero and that's not we need something a lot more precise for this so we use one of our conversion methods our conversion functions which we talked about pretty early on it feels like forever ago right i feel like it was one of the early chapters we talked about conversion functions. they were the beginnings of collecting inputs these conversion functions they were the first few chapters in the chap in sections in chapter four wow So yeah, so we're using kernel float, and so we're passing in the amount to float, and float is a lot more strict about what it can and cannot do. Yeah, and so we can be safe in the knowledge that provided we're getting a sensible string that that can be converted into a float, the conversion function will handle that. And so Avdi says now... We, when we look at the code at the at the end of it all, we've got this refresh transactions method. It 
get, fetches the transactions, check that it's an array. If we do have an array, we then fetch the amount key and transform that into a sense amount and saves it away. And so we've got code that now communicates what our understanding of the API is, what the parameters are that we need, and that if there are any problems, it's gonna blow up quickly with a meaningful exception message. And because of the way this code is written, we don't have the, you know, type checking, we don't need to do other bits of coercion, other methods. It's just a very explicit readable bit of code that explains how the API is set up essentially. Yeah, and so in doing that, we have this early warning system and he touches on the idea of type checking or, or duct typing and how usually we say, you know, if it, if it quacks like a duck, then it's fine and we can trust it. But that assumes trust. And really kind of the bigger picture with this section is saying that sometimes you, you, if you don't know what you're getting into, you first have to understand it and explore and confirm before you get to a place of trust. And so here, like you said, we're testing our assumptions and making sure we understand fully what's going on. And in that context, type checking is okay. Wonderful. And that wraps up 4.15. And I feel I should say that we are 50% of the way through Confident Ruby. Wow, that's pretty good. I'm very happy. And I love how Ruby Book Club has made me finally start working through this book. Yeah, this has been on my to-do list for a very long time. So really glad that I now have to read at least an hour a week. So I'm sure you've used third-party APIs that were not very helpful and not very well-documented. So we want to know, how have you navigated that? Did you end up using assertions to help you figure out what's going on and make sure things blow up? Did you use a different method in your code to help you figure out those unfriendly, not very nice API results? Let us know, record your 30-second response, and send it to us at hello at rubybookclub.com, and you might hear yourself on the show. And don't forget to tweet us at Ruby Book Club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. See ya. 